I will invite you this morning to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 2, and we will start in verse 12. We're going to be looking at the church of Pergamos this morning. We've already come through the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, and now we come to Pergamos. This is a compromised church that has been wedded with the world, with paganism specifically, and we'll take a look at that. But before we dive straight into this letter, I want to review what we've seen so far. So we've got first the local application, and the local application is pretty straightforward, and it runs very much along the same lines as the admonitory application, um, and that is the application to all churches in general. So in Ephesus, we saw that God requires devotion not just doctrine from his churches. You know, doctrine is very important, and we have a lot of scripture devoted to doctrine, but Jesus demands devotion alongside our doctrine. In Smyrna, we saw that Jesus had no words of condemnation for that church. That church was bearing up under heavy, heavy persecution, and Our admonition is to endure persecution, hardships that we find in the world. Now in Pergamos this week, we will see that we are to purify our ambassadorship as a church. Now, what does this mean? It means that we should be keeping the church pure of outside influences. The church should be influenced by the scripture by the word of God and his will for the church, not by the world, our flesh, or the enemy, our three uh, main detractors. And then we'll see Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea in the coming weeks. Then we'll move on to the personal application. Similar to the uh, previous ones we went through, just a little bit different wording for us personally. The letter to the church of Ephesus told us that we should not neglect those things which should be prioritized, and that is personal devotion with God. I know sometimes we can get bogged down, especially when we're involved in some kind of ministry in works, and we're always working to do good things for Christ, and they are good things. But God does not want us distracted by the busyness. God wants our personal devotion. In Smyrna, We saw that Christians, in general, will come into satanic opposition. You know, there will be forces of darkness that are working against us. And Paul tells us this. He says that we don't war against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and those that govern this age. Now, Pergamos, this week, we will see that in our personal lives, our personal devotion, we should not make any spiritual compromises. There is no room for compromise when we are coming to God. Now we come to the promises to the overcomer. In each letter, Jesus ascribes a special promise to the ones who overcome, and we know those are the believers. In Ephesus, the promise was that you would get to eat of the tree of life. In Smyrna, he promised that the overcomers would not be hurt of the second death. 
and in Pergamos, he will promise to let us eat of the hidden manna, and he promises to give us a stone, a white stone with a new name inscribed on it, that which no one else knows but he who holds it. And we'll look at this. Now, who is this overcomer? John tells us in 1 John 5, 4, and 5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Are you born of God? If you are born again, you are an overcomer. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's how we become overcomers. And Revelation 12, 11 also refers to the believer as an overcomer. Now, I hope that gave you enough time to find Revelation 2 in your Bible. So Revelation 2.12 starts off, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write. So this letter is addressed to the angel, the pastor, the overseer of the church in Pergamos. Pergamos was um, close to Smyrna, uh, probably 60 miles away in that same area of Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write. So Christ is addressing this letter to the church in Pergamos, specifically the pastor. Now I want you to remember the churches that we talked about before. Ephesus was the great political center of Rome. Smyrna was the great commercial center of Rome. And Pergamos, as we will see, was the great religious center of Rome. This city was steeped in pagan practices, which include Caesar worship, this imperial cult. Now, a bit of background for you on Pergamos. This city became extremely wealthy under Alexander the Great's leadership. And since it wasn't located on any major trade route, it actually didn't rise to the commercial prowess of Ephesus and Smyrna. So it was rich in its own right, but it was not quite as rich as decadent as Ephesus and Smyrna were. Both of those other two were port cities. This one is about 18 miles inland. Zeus is said to have been born in Pergamos. And I didn't know that until this week. But the, the myth is that Zeus was actually born in Pergamos. His temple stood on a foundation of 125 feet by 115 feet and over 50 feet high. It was set in a colonnaded enclosure, much like we saw with the Temple of Diana a couple weeks ago. And we'll see a reference to Satan's throne in Revelation 2.13, the next verse that we come to. And some believe that this reference to Satan's throne could be referring to this temple and more specifically the altar to Zeus. And we'll look at that as it presents itself. The name of this city, Pergamos, is also very informative as to what this letter is going to cover. Per is a prefix meaning mixed or objectionable. And we see that gamos is a suffix that means marriage. Interesting. 
That's exactly what Jesus addresses to this church, mixed marriages or corrupted marriages. Um, And specifically, so it has a couple applications. We'll see when we deal with Balaam that the Israelites married Moabitess women. And that was a mixed marriage that was objectionable in God's eyes. And he actually strictly forbid intermarriage in general, but especially to Moabites in the Torah. So we'll see that. But it also speaks of the church being married to paganism, to pagan practices. And that is very much intertwined in the history of Pergamos. So we have this inappropriate marriage. And this is Jesus's main concern for this church. He says, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus chooses to display himself to this church as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. We know from other scriptures that this sharp two-edged sword refers to what? The word of God. So this two-edged sword is the word of God. The word of God turns out to be the solution to this church's problem. And this is whether or not they choose to use it correctly. And I'll explain. If they choose to apply the word of God to their circumstance, then they will purify their ambassadorship. They will kick this paganism that has influenced the church to the curb. That is if they choose to use it correctly. If they do not let the word of God influence their practice, then Jesus will come with his word, the sharp two-edged sword, and he will fight them. He says down in verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Interesting. Either way you slice it, the word of God is the solution to this problem. Jesus says, I know your works. He says that he knows the works of each one of his churches. That phrase, I know your works, is found in each of these seven letters. Here, it is a good thing. It's presented as a commendation. Jesus is commending them because he says, I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Jesus is telling these guys, I know where you live, and it's not in a creepy way. I know where you live and that it's hard to deal with these outside influences. You live in a place where these cults, this paganism is running rampant. And that is what your entire culture is based around. And I know your works and that you hold fast to my name. This is a good thing. John seventeen fourteen through 19 records Jesus's prayer for his disciples. And this is an interesting passage because he talks about his disciples in relation to the world. 
It relates exactly to what Jesus is commending this church for. Jesus prays to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now listen, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. In this passage, we see the themes of one, God's word, two, the world, and three, the evil one, or Satan. All three of these themes are present in this letter to the church of Pergamos. And we see from the passage in John 17 that Jesus asked the Father to sanctify them by your, the Father's, truth. And then Jesus says, your word is truth. Jesus equates God's word with truth. And this word sanctify simply means to set apart. Thus, we can be separated, set apart to God by his word. And because of that, we are set apart from the world. You see, the biblical concept of separation is not just separation from something, from the world. It's separation to God. We are set apart, sanctified to God. And that just naturally makes us separate from the world. The sharp two-edged sword, the word of God, sanctifies us. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, I mentioned just a second ago that some believe this could be a specific reference to the temple of Zeus that was located in Pergamos, and even more precisely, the altar of Zeus in this temple. The altar is seen as a plain display of the prominence of heathendom, paganism, in this culture. And it's cited as having a throne-like appearance. This altar is actually pieced back together in Germany in a museum. And you can look up pictures of the altar of Zeus that came from Pergamos. So I'd invite you to do that afterwards. But you'll see that it actually looks kind of like a throne. This altar is shaped in such a way that it looks kind of like a throne. Now, further, the obvious presence of serpent-related imagery um, and the reference to Zeus as Soter seems to aim directly at Christianity. Okay, you have the serpent imagery, Satan. We know Satan is the serpent. Soter is the Greek term for savior. They would refer to Zeus among other gods of the pantheon, as Soter, Savior, Zeus Soter. So these seem to all point directly to a 
juxtaposition with Christianity. It's a very sharp contrast. And this would call the question to mind. Could this be, you know, the locality where Satan set up his throne? You know, this center of religion in the pagan Roman Empire. And to call Zeus, who is actually a representative of some satanic being, um, if not Satan himself, to call him Soter would be exactly what Satan wants, right? Because in Isaiah, it tells us that he wanted to be like the Most High, Savior, Zeus Soter. Now, the case for Satan's throne being at the altar to Zeus is admittedly plausible. I think that is fairly well-based. But I think that a case can also be made that the entire city of Pergamos could be referred to here as the throne of Satan. Um, This entire city. The temple to Zeus was only one of many pagan temples in this city. And Pergamos, like I said, was the center of religion. And not only was it the center of religion for Rome, but at this time, it would have actually been the center of religion for the world. Rome being the most powerful empire at the time. It was also uh, the center for imperial, the imperial cult, the worship of the Caesars. There were temples to Caesar Augustus, Hadrian, and a slew of the classic pagan gods that we think of, including this figure, Escalapius. And he is an interesting fellow. Uh, He was the tutelary god, or the god that they set up to guard their city in Pergamos. And his symbol is a rod with a snake wrapped around it. He was the god of healing. Interesting, because a lot of medical professionals, uh, medical communities, hospitals have a similar symbol, a rod with a snake wrapped around it. Now, there's a distinction here that I think you would find interesting that I'm not going to dwell on, but I want to mention. There's also a symbol of Hermes that's a staff with two snakes wrapped around it. And that's the caduceus. And that is separate from the staff of Aesculapius, but Aesculapius' symbol represents healing. Hermes was the god of commerce. So if you see a symbol with one snake wrapped around it, symbol of healing. Two snakes wrapped around it, symbol of commerce. I thought that was pretty interesting. So next time you see a hospital with two snakes wrapped around it on its emblem... (laughs) Just be careful. So, back to our text. We know that Satan, fallen angels, and demons all possess this thing called locality. And this is just to say that they are not omnipresent like God is. And scripture supports this well. Satan's headquarters seem to have migrated throughout history, starting in Babylon. This is where paganism was born. The first dictator of the world, Nimrod, 
and his wife, Semiramis, um, got people to get on board with this pagan religion. And from Babylon, uh, the names have changed, but Semiramis, Nimrod, those figures in their deity, in quotes, have been passed on through cultures, through generations. And you can actually trace um, some of the classic Roman and Greek gods back to their roots in pagan Babylon. It's all the same. So I say that to say that Satan's headquarters have migrated from Babylon at the start to now in this text, Pergamos, Pergamos is the headquarters when this is being written. And then later, it transfers to Rome. And that's something that we're not going to get into this morning, but we'll revisit later. Now, I mentioned Escalapius as the guardian god, so to speak, of Pergamos. But did you know that people still set up pagan gods to guard their cities? Summer and I actually had a run-in with what we believe is one of these um, beings or something. (laughs) I don't know. But we were on our honeymoon trip, and we took a road trip up to see the Ark Encounter in the Creation Museum in Kentucky. And on the way back down, we stopped at several cities, just took our time. One of them was Birmingham. And I thought about not mentioning the name of the city, but there's so many details in here that would just give it away, so I figured, ah, whatever. So we came into Birmingham, and as we were driving in, we just started feeling uncomfortable. You know, that's just the best way to put it. So we were driving around going to Hattie B's, amazing chicken place. Uh, We were going to get some lunch, and we passed this shop on a corner of a street, And they were selling supplies to witches, okay? And it was very much out in the open, very plain. They even said something about, come get your black cat for New Year's. Like, I mean, it was very, very obvious. So we were like, ugh, that's that's off-putting. But we went to get our chicken. It was amazing. Uh, We're driving to a tourist attraction, that we were recommended to go see. It's the statue of Vulcan. Now, if you're familiar with Roman mythology, Vulcan is the god of the ironworks, or the god of the forge. Um, you can compare him to Hephaestus of the Greeks. So this statue is huge. I mean, it's actually the largest cast iron statue in the world, I believe, And it was erected on this hill. It's Red Mountain, just on the outskirts of Birmingham. And it literally overlooks the city. And this is a huge tourist attraction. We went there. There's a museum attached to it that tells of its history. And I was astonished to see some of the things that they said in the museum about this statue. They said, and this is not a quote, but it's very close. Uh, They said something along the lines of, we erected this statue here to look over the city and to see its rise in the ironworks. Because Birmingham, soon after, uh, became 
the top steel and iron exporting city in the U.S. They erected this statue to watch over their city. That kind of caught us off guard. But we went back to our Airbnb that night, and we unpacked our bags and everything. We had dinner, warmed up some leftovers, and we started playing a board game. And it was not enjoyable. And neither one of us would admit it, but we were just going crazy. We could not focus. We could not stay comfortable. There was just this air of uncomfortability. And so finally, finally, Summer had the guts to say, hey, are you feeling all right? Like, are we good? Like, something feels off. I was like, oh, my goodness. Thank you for saying something. Let's get out of here. (laughs) So we actually packed up our bags at about 9 p.m., drove 50 minutes, and stayed in a neighboring town. And I'm not kidding you. As we were driving out of Birmingham, we both just took a huge breath, a sigh of relief. It's the weirdest thing, but I actually think that there was a some kind of demonic influence in that city. And here's the thing. If the spirit that is within you contrasts with the spirit that is in another place, you can feel it. And I believe that that is what we felt that day. So long story short, we got out of there and we actually felt better when we left that location. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. I actually know a few really solid Christians that live in Birmingham. And I'm not knocking any of those guys. In fact, I think... Jesus would say to them, I know where you live, and you've held fast to my name. I think that he would commend them for being a light in a dark place. When God refers to his name, and you hold fast to my name, you'll notice that it's always singular. Sure, God has many names that are laid out in Scripture, but he says the singular, my name. And it's always in reference to his authority. His name represents his authority. There is an authority in the name of God. And if we look at the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This word take is the Hebrew nasah, which means to bear up, to carry, or to take. And it seems that this commandment is not talking about vocabulary, as it is often thought, but it's talking about ambassadorship. You shall not bear or take up the Lord's name in vain or falsely. It's not something to be taken lightly. If you take his name, you are operating under his authority. It's just like a federal agent who busts your door in and comes to raid your home. They're not acting on their own authority, under their own name. They are acting 
under the name of the U.S. government, you know, whatever agency they're a part of. They wear that badge. They've got the name of the agency on the back of their vest. They are under the authority of an agency. It's the same for Christians. When we um, operate, I'll use that for lack of a better term, in the world, we are representing our agency, which is Christ. We should not take that lightly. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So Jesus commends Christians at Pergamos for holding fast to his name, to his authority. During this time period of history, certain men stood fast in the true doctrines of the faith. And this was in the midst of great pressure from heretics. See, Satan focused his attack against the Smyrna era church from the outside. Now Satan transitioned to focusing on the attack of the church from the inside. These heretics come in, the paganism gets married to the church. And among these great men were Athanasius and Augustine. And even though, you know, we can't say that they were 100% spot on all the time, I honestly don't know anyone who is. Uh, But they did great things in standing fast for the name of Jesus and for his faith, for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And I intend to go into that in a little more detail after we finish up chapter 3. I'm wanting to take a Sunday after chapter 3 to go through the prophetic profile of these letters and outline certain events and key topics in church history that relate back to these letters. So I'm going to table that discussion for another Sunday. But just to give you a broad overview, the first five ecumenical councils were held during this time period, Pergamos, between 313 and around 590. And these mostly addressed the views put forth by those who would later be denounced as heretical. These councils were actually quite effective at rejecting these heretical stances, and among these were Arianism, Nestorianism, Pelagianism, and Sacerdotalism. And I'd like to look at those a little bit more um, later. But for now, we can simply say that the church did not deny the true faith during this time period. They did well, and they're commended by Christ as holding fast to his name and the faith, and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Tertullian, a church father, wrote that Antipas was a dentist and a doctor who was a faithful witness for Christ. And this record from Tertullian says that he didn't waver in his testimony. And because of that, he was cast into a hollowed out copper bull and roasted above a fire in that bull. That is the way that he was martyred according to tradition. Whether this account is completely true or not, I can't really say, but Jesus does say, 
that this man was faithful. He was counted as faithful to Christ. Jesus knows the hardships this church is going through, and he commends them for remaining faithful. Now we've come to verse 14. We'll crack into this character, Balaam. But I have a few things against you because you have those you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So who is this Balaam character? Well, Balaam called himself a prophet. The scripture calls him a soothsayer. That should tell you a little bit. And that's found in Joshua 13.22. Balaam was a Gentile from Mesopotamia. And you may remember Balaam as being the guy who was yelled at by his donkey. You remember that? Back in uh, Numbers, Numbers 22 recounts that. Balaam was hired by Balak, who was the king of Moab, to place a curse on Israel. But God did not allow Balaam to curse his people. Each time Balaam went to prophesy, God put words of blessing in his mouth instead of curses. This happened numerous times, and even by the first time, King Balak was furious. Balaam was ultimately kept from cursing Israel himself, but we can infer from Numbers 31.16 that Balaam actually taught Balak how he could defeat Israel. Because the whole reason that Balak called upon Balaam was because Balak, the king of this Moabite nation, was terrified that Israel was going to come in and take over. They had been going around, you know, taking over the cities. And he knew that their God was powerful. So he called upon Balaam, the prophet, the soothsayer, to curse this Israel, this nation of Israel. So, what does Balaam tell Balak that gets these Israelites cursed? He says, hey, I can't curse these people. God is protecting them. But I can tell you how you can turn God's blessing into curse. Because God commanded these people not to intermarry, not to marry Moabites especially. So what I want you to do is you send in your shady ladies to the camp of Israel and have them entice the men in Israel to sleep with them. And then these shady ladies will introduce to them their idols. Idolatry was introduced into the camp of Israel. And this is relating to this problem of paganism being introduced into the church. These shady ladies led to mixed marriages with the Moabite women and the infiltration of their idols into the camp. Thus, the reference to Balaam in this verse speaks of spiritual fornication, which is exactly what we see in the Pergamos era church. There are two other New Testament references to Balaam 
You'll find those in 2 Peter 2.15 and Jude 11. And each one of those two are referring to his greed, but they put a slightly different emphasis on it. Uh, So you can check those out if you'd like this afternoon. Now, I've been talking about the paganization, and i that's my made-up word I coined, the paganization of this church. Well, the church, really. And I want to give you a little bit of background there. Diocletian was the last emperor of the Smyrna-era church, which we just came through. And Constantine succeeded Diocletian in AD 306. Constantine's Edict of Toleration in 313, which I mentioned briefly last week, made Christianity legal in Rome, where previously it had been an underground movement. Constantine was supposedly converted to Christianity himself. And there are a lot of records of this, but even Constantine's own um, conversion is hotly debated. We don't actually know his motivations. You know, it's hard to ascribe motivations to a guy who lived such a long time ago. Um, but he said that he was converted. You can take, take that for what it is. Um, but we don't know if it was actually through a truly regenerated heart or his desire to make allies with the Christians. Okay. He did some good, but he also set the stage for what would end up being the most tragic move that the church has ever made in merging with the pagan religion of Babylon. We'll look at this. Some good things that Constantine did include exempting Christian ministers from taxes. He encouraged and helped in building churches, although the first church was built during a previous emperor's reign, uh, Alexander Severus. He issued a general exhortation to all of his subjects to embrace Christianity. You know, that's good. Hey, guys, this way to Christianity. He moved the capital of this new Christian empire to Byzantium, and he renamed it Constantinople. Later, it would be renamed Istanbul, which it still is today, when the Muslims conquered. He made Sunday a rest day forbidding ordinary work. And even slaves and soldiers got to take Sundays off, which was previously unheard of. But this institution of a rest day wasn't all in good conscience. There were a few sun-worshipping cults in the Roman Empire, and Constantine wanted to unite all of the religions in a kind of common day of worship. So he said, hey, Sunday, you all get the day off, go worship your respective deities on Sundays. So that's that's what he did. He tried to group everyone together, sense of nationalism. Here we go. He also instituted social reforms, which, you know, were a good thing. These included the reduction of slavery in many places, the abolition of the gladiatorial fights, and the abolition of crucifixion as a means of execution. You know, awesome. After Constantine, though, Julian, who is called the apostate, 
takes power in 361. Julian sought to restore paganism to the empire, to undo everything Constantine did. Thankfully, though, Julian only lasts a couple of years, and then he is succeeded by Jovian in 363. Jovian takes over and reestablished the Christian religion. Now, in 378, Theodosius takes power. And Theodosius is actually the one who made Christianity the state religion of Rome. What Constantine did was he made Christianity legal. What Theodosius did was made it illegal to not be Christian. You see the difference there? Christianity was mandated by the state. So as you can imagine, this effectively filled the churches, but the churches were filled with unregenerates, people who were not born again into the body of Christ. And truly, many of them were still practicing pagans. So the problem of infrastructure also arose. What were they to do with all these pagan temples that had already been built, they had spent fortunes on. Naturally, many of these pagan temples were converted into Christian churches. These pagan temples also came with their pagan priests. What do you do with all those priests? Make them Christian priests, right? That was the apparently the the obvious answer to this question back then, you know. I don't think that that uh, necessarily follows the outlines that Paul gave to Timothy. So what this did was it introduced in the clergy an ambition to rule, and in other words, to lord it over, which Jesus sharply condemns, and. They had this sense of wanting to climb the corporate ladder. They wanted to be in greater positions of power. And the church actually did have power at this time. The church could decide some matters of the state. So these people in high places in the Christian community, Christian in air quotes, they actually did have some pull. And thus, Heathenism was Christianized. You have this marriage, a perverted marriage, mixed marriage. Pagan temples became churches. Heathen festivals and traditions were borrowed by Christians. Pagan priests slipped into offices as Christian priests. So what Satan didn't accomplish by persecuting the church, he did accomplish by joining the church. If you can't beat him, join him. That's right. Verse 15. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So again, the deeds of the Nicolaitans show up, but by this time, they become galvanized into doctrine, which Jesus condemns. Jesus says, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans and now the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And we looked at this word 
pretty carefully a couple of weeks ago when we were in the letter to Ephesus. But Nikeo means to conquer, and Laos is people. So Nicolaitans seek to domineer or conquer the laity, the common people. Among the pagan practices that crept into the church were some that elevated the clergy over the laity. In AD 375, the worship of saints was instituted, along with the worship of angels. In 500, priests began dressing differently than the lay people. And in 600, right at the end of this time period, worship services began to be conducted in Latin, which was a language that was mostly unknown by the common people. So we see this elevation of the clergy. And Jesus hates this. Can you imagine, just for a second, imagine if someone came to your kid and said, from now on, you have to talk to your father through me. You can't go talk to your dad. I want you to come talk to me, and I will petition your father. So your kid comes up to him and says, I want a cookie. Can you ask my dad if I can have a cookie? And that middleman comes to you as the father says, your child would like to inquire about the possibility of him attaining a cookie from the cookie jar. <laughs> How messed up is that? The father just wants his kid to come as a kid. Dad, I really want a cookie right now. So we have to understand where he's coming from here. These Nicolaitans are trying to step in between him and his children. Jesus says, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword analogy is picked back up in this verse. But this time Jesus says that he will be wielding the sword. And notice who Jesus will be fighting. He says, them, in reference to the Nicolaitans of the previous verse. He will come to this church in Pergamos and fight against the Nicolaitans if the church doesn't repent, change their minds about how they deal with these guys, the Nicolaitans. So it's the church's job to deal with these people. It's the church's job to purge the body of toxins. Repent. To this church in Pergamos, repent. Change your mind about how you deal with these guys. Don't let them fester in the body. If you get a splinter and it has any kind of size to it, and you let it sit there in your finger and fester, you, know, you let it go long enough, you just got to chop the finger off. You know, there's no saving it. The church needs to wake up and see the damage that's being caused by those inside it. Now, we don't need to go kicking people out right away. Come to them in love 
and humbly, and we correct them. If we try to correct them twice, they still don't mind, they don't repent, then that is the time that we exercise church discipline. Say, hey man, your actions are not lining up with what we find in Scripture. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus calls the church to repentance for allowing these guys to fester. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So we have this classic, classic phrase. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'm not going to go into too much detail there because I've done it a couple times already. So just for a refresher, though, we all have ears, right? This is written to us. Okay. Churches is plural. He wants us to hear what he has to say to all the churches. To him who overcomes, now this is our promise to the overcomer. I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. We know the manna from the Old Testament was a wafer-like substance that fell from heaven and it fed the Israelites as they were wandering in the wilderness. Jesus then tells the people who followed him to Capernaum, this is from John 3, I'm sorry, John 6, 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He says, I am the bread of life. And if you look back, just a couple verses there in John 6, this quote comes directly after a specific reference to the manna of the Old Testament. We also need to take into consideration that Jesus' body is symbolized in the bread of communion. So Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And then later he instituted communion in which the bread symbolizes his body. So we can clearly see in our text this morning that Jesus is referring to something of himself in the reference to the hidden manna. But what does it mean that this manna is hidden? Now that seems a little bit strange. Evidently, there are aspects of Jesus' character and his person that he will only reveal when we meet him face to face. I personally believe that we will be learning of the love of Christ throughout all of eternity. I don't think that we are ever able to fully comprehend the depth of love that he's showed us. This hidden manna, it's something of Jesus that he has reserved to show you when you meet him. That is pretty cool. I am excited for that. 
What a wonderful thing that will be. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This is a strange analogy. You know, and I say analogy, I think that it will be literally fulfilled, but I think that it is an analogy to something specific in history, likely in the lives of these people in Pergamos. Now, if you want to read the scholars on this verse, I would highly encourage you to keep a bottle of aspirin at your desk because you'll need it. There are so many possibilities as to the historical reference that Jesus makes. Yet none of them seem to satisfy all of the nuances of this example. You have a stone. It's white, and it has a new name on it, which no one else knows. Okay, I'm going to spare you the gory details, but I'm going to take you through a few of the possibilities. There used to be stones that were called tessera, handed out as tokens of admission to sporting events or to feasts. It could be that Jesus is referring to this aspect of Pergamene culture. Stones were also used as ancient friendship bracelets. Hear me out. A stone would be broken in half, and each half given to one of the parties in a sort of pact. And if, down through the generations you came to realize that your stone fit with some other person's stone, you would recognize that your families had this agreement of cooperation, and it would be honorable to continue honoring that uh, pact. But both of these explanations don't explain the white color or the name inscribed on the stone. Colin J. Himmer recounts his first visit to the ruins of Pergamos with these words. Now, bear with me. I'll summarize when we're done with this quote. On first visiting Pergamum, I was struck with the fact that the Acropolis and its buildings are of a coarse, very dark brown granite, which contributes much to the stern and inhospitable atmosphere of the fortress. The numerous inscriptions in situ on the lower terraces are cut on blocks of white marble whose color and texture form a strange contrast with the natural stone. They have clearly been transported up the mountain for their explicit purpose. So in Pergamos, there were inscriptions in white pieces of stone in the walls somewhere, and he didn't specify where. Um, I guess the Acropolis and its buildings. But there was this sharp contrast between the dark granite that was mostly used for construction and a white stone that was placed in it with an inscription. Interesting. There was also a practice in the Roman courtrooms that utilized white and black rocks. When a trial concluded and it was time for the judges to cast their votes, they would walk by two urns and they would place either a white stone in an urn or a black stone in an urn. And the colors represented their verdict. So the judges would walk by, place their stones, they would count them all up, 
And if you had more white stones than black stones, you were counted as innocent. If you had more black stones, you're condemned. The color with more stones decided the verdict. Innocence or guilt. And Jesus gives us a white stone. In the ancient world, names were associated with character. We see that in Scripture. You know, a lot of the names in Scripture are descriptive of the person. Each man's name meant something. And now we just name our kids whatever sounds cute. I don't understand that, but it's how we live. A new name would symbolize our entry into a new life, status, or personality. It seems that 2 Corinthians 5.17 refers to the spiritual regeneration that occurs when we're born again. I would think that we'd mostly be familiar with that verse. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So this is in reference to the spiritual regeneration that occurs when we are born again. Then, when we meet Jesus face to face, he will give us this stone with a new name inscribed on it. I believe that this new name will match our new nature found in him. What a glorious day this will be. We have a new name, and nobody else knows it. And don't think that I'm going to tell you my name when we get up there. That's for me and him. But these names are hidden to everyone else. It is something that you and Christ are a part of. It's something special for you all to share. This theme of a new name for the saints is actually carried over from the Old Testament. Let's look at this because it's cool. Isaiah 62.2 says, The Gentiles shall see your righteousness, and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. Back in Isaiah. Also in Isaiah, chapter 65, verse 15, You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. Interesting. So, what do we have in this picture of a white stone with a new name inscribed on it. The historicity of these things doesn't matter as much. What I want you to get from this is that there is acceptance. You've been admitted. There is innocence. You've been absolved of your sin. And you are a new creation in Christ. Whatever life you've lived previously has no bearing on who you are under Christ. We are given a new name, this new nature that we receive when we're regenerated, we're born again. That finds its consummation in Revelation at the end. A new name that will be between you and him. Is there something that's causing you 
to live a compromised life? Are you being betrothed right now to something in the world? Is there something that's creeping into your life that is hindering your relationship with Christ? And we can go both extremes here. We can backslide into something of the world. And that's taken down way too many Christians. You know, being turned, our affections being turned to the world. And that's one side, one extreme. But we can also go the other extreme. We can front slide into a life of legalism. And that is just as destructive. We want to center ourselves. And in the center should be Christ. He's the cornerstone. I love the picture of a cornerstone. Because the cornerstone is the first stone that you lay down in this construction project. The cornerstone is the one which all of the other stones are laid off of. The cornerstone decides the angles of every other stone that is laid down in the foundation. Every piece of our life should be measured off of Christ, and he should be at the center. He should be our firm foundation. If God has placed something on your heart that needs to be dealt with, I would so encourage you to lay that before his feet this morning. Don't leave in the same condition that you came out in. Do not leave without dealing with what needs to be dealt with. Because we see this church in Pergamos. They are commended for holding fast to his name, for holding fast, not denying the faith. But God has something against them. They've let things sneak in that institute religion instead of a relationship. And when we let things come in, these can be sins and they can not be sins. They don't necessarily have to be sin that's holding you back from a full relationship with Christ. Are you spending too much time on your career? Are you not able to get into the word every day because you're so busy with whatever else life has you doing? And that's not the only thing it can be. Whatever is holding you back from the relationship that you know you should be having with Christ, man, lay that down. Do not let something come between you and him. He hates it when something comes between him and his children. Let's go ahead and close our study this morning in a word of prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you.